Hello and welcome to Extreme Perspectives. This is a monthly podcast created by The Sense Network to bring you conversations with people who see things differently and think differently. This podcast is for people who want to expand their mind and develop their creative intelligence. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. For 20 years, I've been seeking out people from the edges of culture, the creators, outliers, misfits, rebels, and the crazy ones. People who want to change things and push the human race forward. In this episode of Extreme Perspectives, I speak with a geological outlier, author, literary editor, and explorer of many intellectual rabbit holes, Noah Menheim. Noah describes herself as the crazy aunt who badgers people with weird and wonderful facts. Now, she has made this eclectic knowledge available in her new book, The Life Fantastic, a book so crammed full that the content overflows into the margins. Listen in as we discuss how myths are made, why some disappear, and how Noah conducts her research into unicorns, witches, mermaids, and werewolves. Hi, Noah. Welcome to Extreme Perspectives. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today because you have written an amazing book and we're going to hopefully dive into some of those stories and understand a little bit more about how you how you got there. Uh, But as an introduction, we have the opening question. Are you an outlier, a misfit, a rebel or a crazy one? Well, I thought a lot about it. And I think for me, it's not so much uh, an either or situation, but more of an evolutionary process. I think I started off as a misfit and everyone thought I was the crazy one. And then I became a rebel. And today I would describe myself as an outlier, but in the geological sense, because in geology, an outlier is an area of young rock surrounded by older rocks exposed by erosion. So I'm rocking now. (laughs) Amazing. And you are making my life very easy. So just from your intro, you have given me lots of clues. And well, the first thing you've given me, I've never stopped to think about outliers from a geological perspective. So point number one, uh, I've learned something new in the first minute. So thank you. But the other thing I'd love to understand a bit more, you say you started as a misfit. Tell me a little bit about the journey that you've been on there, where you started and uh, how you've meandered to where you are today using geological references now. Well, I did grow up surrounded by rocks or more precisely stones, uh, very old stones. I was raised, as the song says, a stone throw from Jerusalem um, in the old city of Jerusalem. Our house was just across from the Wailing Wall, the supposed uh, location of the Jewish temple, right across from the big mosque that sits on the same location, and about 10 minutes walk from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was a very strange place to grow up in, because you were surrounded by all these, well, first of all, religions, then cultures. I grew up in, um, I would say, like a courtyard surrounded by three houses. One of, a, one of them was ours. The other one was um, this Muslim family, and uh, our third neighbor were Christians. Um, So it's like you had all these three Abrahamic religions in this really one small, tiny place where I lived. And the fact that 
every day when I walked back and forth from school or just went to get milk from my mom from the grocery store, I was steeped in time. I was drenched in it. I mean, you walked past relics from 500 years ago and then 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago to 5,000 years ago when you went to get milk. So I think, first of all, it was a very strange place to grow up in. A lot of people suffering from what they call Jerusalem uh, syndrome, uh, which is a state where like the gravitas of the history unfolding in front of your eyes, just the sense of this place and its antiquity and its significance really messes with your uh, with your mind and you start seeing things literally. So we had people dressed up in robes playing the harp on the street because they were overwhelmed by this, um, the magnitude of the place. So that's the, the breeding ground for my mind. Um, and I think it was a very important part of my, my journey. Um, but even in this very strange environment, I felt stranger, um, not like everyone else. It was a very lonely child. I uh, didn't have a lot of friends. There are not a lot of girls my age there. Um, my family was an uh, Orthodox Jewish family. Um, so religion was a very big part of my life. Uh, and community was a very big part of our um, daily life there. But when you have a community, you always have to have the people who do not really fit in snugly with the community. And I was one of these people. Um, and my best friends were words and books and, um, imaginary protagonists that I only read about. Not only, uh, a fascinating start in life in terms of where you're situated. Well, I'm just joining some dots and it's, uh, I shouldn't do this so early in the conversation, but I just thought I might share it with you. You just, you talked about, um, I say the loneliness as a child and we have been doing research around creativity. And this is one of the things that we have discovered. It's only child or actually lonely children or, or people who spend time on their own. Their imagination seems to develop differently. I mean, we, this is, we're at the very beginning of this, but I'm, I'm obviously jumping to qualitative conclusions here based on no data whatsoever. So wait for the comments to get shot down on that one. But it's not, it's a, it was fascinating to hear that. And because I have obviously been exposed to your wonderful book, The Life Fantastic, I know how deep you go into some of this and how much you've thought about it. So sorry for jumping in and sharing that. But I was also struck by what's the phenomena you were talking about that what my why people might dress in robes and play the harp in the streets? It's called the Jerusalem syndrome. And it happens to people who come to Jerusalem for the first time. And it can happen to people of all faiths. I mean, the, the fact that it's like the epicenter of so many uh, monotheistic, you know, all three large monotheistic religions. And they get there and they're just awestruck in the original sense. And something, you know, shakes loose in their mind and they either start to hallucinate or get very um, unstable emotionally. So we've seen, I've seen, you know, a lot of these cases when I was growing up. Because I'm joining dots there again. We There is an expression 
that I don't know if you've heard it, Aesthetic Chills. Yes, it's a very cool name for a band. But this is Definitely. the effect that you can have when you walk into art music, art, you know, and see, you know, profound art, and it has this aesthetic chill. It sounds like that. It's that effect multiplied by, by yeah, exponential sort of size of that, the effect that it's having on people. So I, again, I knew this was going to be this sort of conversation. We're going to sort of keep jumping off and going in different directions, but I'll try not to do that. I'm determined to hear a, a little bit more about your journey. So jumping off is, you know, if I had to uh, pick a sport to compete with in the Olympics, I would, you know, that's the one I would choose. But you've mentioned this aesthetic chill, and I'm thinking about, you know, the term that the romantics use to describe the feeling of being, you know, struck by the force of nature, this mysterium tremendum, as they coined it, this uh, tremendous mystery of facing something that is greater than you, the, the big other, which is the divine or like the spiritual consciousness. And I think this is something that a lot of people who come to these holy places for the first time after a lifetime of reading about them and hearing about them and knowing about them, but the fact that you're actually... You're standing in a place where you believe Christ was marched on his, uh, you know, route to the crucifixion site. You're standing in the Via Della Rosa. You're standing next to where the temple stood. Just the sheer uh, immense force that it has on your soul can be uplifting and it can also be disintegrating uh, for, for some people. But growing up there, uh, it was you know, just home. Archaeologists were working all around us, digging up coins from the second temple. We had friends that tried to expand their basement and discovered relics from first temple period and had to, you know, uh, give away their um, whole bottom floor of the house to the uh, antiquity committee. Uh, so this was a really, I think, layered Uh, place to grow up in. I mean, you actually felt like we just, like I mentioned in geology earlier, you actually felt and sensed and saw all around you these layers of history and of culture. Amazing. So this, this was the beginning of your journey. And where did you go from there? Well, the first, I think, step that I took after um, coming out of that place where I felt, as I said, uh, as a misfit. And other people saw me as crazy because I would walk around reading and, you know, my head was stuck in a book. I bumped into people. I used to live in the library. But then came the part of my life where I became a rebel. I, as I said, came from a religious family, an Orthodox Jewish family. And I left. I There's no um, concept in Judaism, which is strange, Uh, to indicate lapse of faith. I mean, in Catholicism, you have lapsed Catholics. There are no lapsed Jews for some reason. But my family remained religious, and I left. Uh, I turned my back on God and moved to the big city where I live now. It's a city called Tel Aviv. It's near the coast in Israel. Um, and I started looking for a way to express myself because I grew up with words all around me and I 
try to find an alternate route of expression um, as a way of leaving my past behind. Uh, I thought cinema and television would be the thing. I went to university to study film and, th and cinema um, and kept coming back to words. I thought, you know, I could direct. I could not direct for my life. Uh, and I kept going back to script writing and script editing and realizing that I could, like Jonah, the prophet who ran away from God when he was commanded to preach to this sinful city. I ran away to the sinful city, the big city of Tel Aviv, um, but I could not run away from, you know, just words on the page kept calling me back. Uh, so I surrendered. Uh, like any good prophet would, I start rebelling against what my conscience was telling me, what my talents was telling me, uh, and I got back to words. I became a literary critic, and I did that for about seven years, and I loved it. I mean, what's not to love? I would open my door every Sunday morning to a stack of new books, and all I had to do was read them and tell other people what I thought about them, which is just like the perfect occupation for me because I like telling people what I think. That's why I wrote the book. And I love reading books. I mean, yeah, what's not to love? So I was a literary critic for about 10 years and then received an offer uh, from the largest publishing house in Israel to join them as an editor. I've never considered being an editor before. I don't think I really understood what it meant when I took on the job. But I think now, looking back, uh, as much as I loved being a critic, for me now, critics are, well, to use uh, um, the most immediate metaphor, um, are like pathologists. I mean, they have the body of the bound book in front of them. And it's dead in the sense that there are no more changes that can be made in the book. It's complete. It's done. And they look at it and have to dissect it in order to understand what makes it tick or what made it stop ticking. I mean, why is this book dead to me? Is it the prose? Is it there's no heart beating in the book? Are the characters so flat that it's flatlined? What's wrong with this book? And... An editor for me, like a structural editor and a literary editor, which is what I am, I'm like the GP. I look at the book and I say, okay, I see all these symptoms. I'm like a Dr. House kind of mode. I see all these symptoms. I see the book is suffering. I see something's not working. Heart rate's too fast or heart rate's too slow. Or I think there's some kind of structural problem. The skeleton, like the skeletal structure of the book is not firm enough and it's not, you know, balanced. So let's get to work. Let's see what can be done. Maybe it's physiotherapy. Maybe it needs an operation. And this is where the editor comes into, uh, into play. So I feel like I'm working now in a field which utilizes much more of my abilities and my inclinations than I used to, you know, use as, as a literary critic. You're very good at what you do. That is the best description I've ever heard of what an editor does. <laughs> I love you. it. I love it. A quick break from this month's episode. If you're enjoying the conversation, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to dive into the back catalogue for more mind-expanding perspectives from the edges of culture.
So I want to start to talk a little bit more about your book now, because when I picked it up and dived into it, there was so much about it I loved. And there was a few unusual things and just the references, the references um, are fantastic. Uh, just, but to give a, I mean, what I loved about it, first and foremost, just on, just on the jacket, it says, these mind-blowing essays. Now, for me, I'm like, that's a challenge. How are they mind-blowing? How mind-blowing are they? And you go, yep, these are exactly the stories I love. These are the stories we exchange because it allows us to reframe stuff. It allows people to correct stuff because so much just gets repeated and not thought about. And I just love the fact that you've, you've gone into this stuff and you've looked at things from so many different perspectives and I think one of the one of the aspects of uh, of your book I loved more than anything else is just seeing marginella. There's not enough of that. There's not enough <laughs> additional comments written down margins in books. So that 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 was great. But I've not done a very good job at introducing it, and I wouldn't want to misrepresent it. So mm. maybe you could just tell us a a little bit more about um, why you, you started. Or what, you know, just. What's what's the what's the origin story? What's the sort of the, what was the genesis of the life fantastic? Well, in the beginning, <laughs> there was chaos. There were actually two hundred and fifty columns that I wrote to one of the um, more literary uh, newspapers in Israel. It's uh, like the Israeli equivalent of the Guardian. I can you know uh, reference to. And I wrote a bi-weekly column for about 10 years um, while still, you know, working as um, head of Hebrew literature department at the publishing house. And um, my sort of um, mission statement was to look at popular culture, current popular culture, find a new movie, a new book, a new TV show, and write about it from a wider perspective. So I had a very broad, you know, um, statement for the, for the column. And I discovered that when I was writing, I kept going back. I kept rolling back time to try and understand where do these stories come from? I mean, what are the origin narratives of whatever it is that I was discussing? If it was a new show about witches then who are the first witches? How did we end up with Sabrina the Teenage Witch? How did we come from uh, the three hags at, in Macbeth standing around the cauldron uh, promising, you know, um, mischief and mayhem and um, the kingdom to Macbeth? How did we end up at high school with teenage witches? And I tried each time to go as far as I could back in time. Um, so I ended up with these 250 different columns. Uh, and what I began to notice was that as I was working, uh, patterns appeared. Connections were made. I was writing about vampires and werewolves were howling at the gates of my text and begging me to let them in. And I had to shoo them off and say, well, I'm writing about vampires now. Don't, you know, come bothering me. Stop sniffing at the foot of my keyboard and let me finish. I'll be with you in a minute. And then a week after, I would write about werewolves. 
And the witches were, you know, standing on the sidelines and saying, hey, we have a long history with werewolves. I mean, what about us? So I wrote about the witches and then I had to write about the devil because, of course, and if you wrote about the devil, how can you not write about hell? And once you write about hell, you have to write about heaven. And, you know, it just kept on rolling these connections, these, um, I would say, like nodes of uh, links became more and more apparent. And this grid was forming. Uh, and I realized I wanted to try and say something that was bigger than the, you know, um, just a single column once every week. And I decided to try and see what map would emerge if I try to lay these stories, these archetypes, these cultural memes, so to speak, um, one next to the other and see just where I'm going. You know, one of my uh, favorite books, which also has one of the most amazing titles um, in my view, is The Garden of Forking Paths by um, Luis Borges. Uh, it's one of my favorite authors of all times. And I was, you know, envisioning in my mind a kind of garden like that, like a big maze or these forking paths that um, you can walk down one of them and then find out that you're at the beginning or in the middle of another. And this is where the marginalia that you um, um, described before came from, because the column in the newspaper was just, you know, as I as I started, it was words on a paper. But when I started layering all these different uh, chapters and episodes into the book, I kept jumping from one to the other, and I wanted to afford the readers the same opportunity not to be bound by the, um, I would say, like the content uh, sheet at the beginning, um, which details one chapter after the other, but to allow them to plot their own path in the book and decide what path they want to take. So first of all, the marginalia were put there in order to free the readers to wander around uh, in each and every direction they wanted. And this is why each of them has a link or a reference to another chapter in the book. But I also discovered that there was so much more content than I could fit in to one chapter or all of the chapters. There was like everything going around the, the main story, the main event I was describing. And I wanted a place where I could express, you know, these other things. and. I also think that they have a significance of their own because they hopefully give you a sense that there is so much more out there. Just a feeling that it's endless and that you can always discover more and that there is always more connections that are than there are plain on the surface. Really trying to infect the readers with curiosity. And I think another reason why I wanted to layer the book the way I did. Actually, just after it was published, I realized that there was an actual term uh, to describe this sort of book. It's called Argotic. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Argotic literature. It's a term that comes from computer science, if I'm not mistaken. 
and it was coined by uh, Aspen Orvest. Uh, he's a, a Norwegian um, academic that studies uh, uh, computer games. And he is using it to describe a text that requires more than the trivial effort of the reader to just flip through the pages. It actually, you know, makes him work harder to construct his own narrative. But I didn't know that I was doing it while I was doing it. But what I was thinking about was, first of all, from my experience in an, as an editor, it looks like someone has done track changes on the page and wrote comments in the margins which is what I do every day. So it literally looks like something, you know, out of my everyday work. And also there are religious, uh, Jewish religious texts called the Gomara, which are interpretations of the Bible. Yes. And the way they look like is that there is a central text block, which is the original uh, biblical text. And all around it in the margins are uh, commentaries of different scholars from different ages. So these are the texts that I grew up with. I mean, I know how to decipher them and I take aesthetic pleasure in the richness of the textual structure, that it's not just the words on the page, that it's much more complex, even visually. I'm really pleased you mentioned the software connection because I saw them almost like hyperlinks. And then when I was looking at the hyperlinks and if you followed the hyperlinks, maybe the one faith that the, the marginella are representing is maybe that's Buddhism because it's saying it's about the interconnectedness of everything. So so maybe that's just sort of lying there waiting to, to be discovered. But the the other thing I love about what you were saying, I, I upset people sometimes by saying there are no new ideas. I say all you can do is remix old ones. But there are so many old ones yet to be discovered and to be juxtaposed and blended together and turned on their head. That's the actual excitement. I couldn't agree and more. for me, and that's the curiosity to discover more and, and reframing them for a new age. So, you know, when we've done work in the past, when we've looked at, say, asked to look at banking, you know, we will go right back to the origins of banking because so much of this gets forgotten over time. And these are other things that I... I rattle on about the importance of stories. Now, unless you have a long lineage of aristocracy, average families rarely know who their family were beyond three generations ago. And all of this sort of gets lost. And I think it's very similar with ideas. Ideas can be lost in generations. And I think it's books like this that resurface them. And they don't have to have profound interpretation they are just that. They are the playfulness of stories. They help you to reframe stuff. And I think that kind of trains your brain to be more creative as well. So I'm just giving you a, a glimpse of why I got excited. Yeah, there, there were so many different things going on for me as I, I was coming through this, through the texts. Can you share a few of your favorite stories? Mm. Which ones? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's really hard to choose. I think in a lot of ways, I'm like this really annoying aunt that you don't want to get seated by uh, at dinner because she would go, did you know that Tiho Braha, the astronomer, had a pet moose that he accidentally killed when he gave it beer to drink? And did you know he had a prosthetic nose made out of gold because he lost his original nose fighting a duel over a question of mathematics? And you're thinking, oh, my God, mom, dad, why did you make me sit next to this crazy woman? 
So I'm actually this person. Um, <laughs> and I wrote, you know, the book in order to give all the other crazy ants out there the uh, ammunition they need to pester their uh, family and kin in, you know, during family dinners. So this is actually a very um, good time to, to buy this book because we're recording this first and foremost in the holiday season. You can you know, have all the ammunition you need to annoy everyone at dinners. But I think my favorite, favorite um, episode in the whole book, which was also a delight to research, uh, is the episode about, of all things, Atomic Priesthood, which talks about the semiotics of how we mark places of nuclear waste disposal. And I know it sounds like the most boring topic in the world on the surface, but I think it, for me, resonated with questions of deep time, which I find myself um, pondering a lot, because this is what I do. And it talks about semiotics, which is also something that's um, of great interest for me. And the idea of um, the way that literature uh, foresaw these um, situations and dealt with them many times, many years before scientists did. And it also touches on a lot of uh, science fiction, which is my favorite genre in the whole world. So this will be my my most uh, um, beloved of the chapters. But I think the a lot of the monstrous stuff is also uh, the stuff that I love most in the book. The chapters dealing with witches and werewolves and vampires that I've mentioned before. But also, you know, the big unicorn scam, the big uh, unicorn bubble that turned out to be a hoax. And it was not. I'm sorry to spoil it for you guys. Uh, if you really believed in unicorns uh, until now, then really, I apologize. But there are not actual horns. Uh, well, there were actual horns, but they did not belong to unicorns. They're actually teeth of a uh, sea mammal called the... Uh, now, I really done it because I don't know the name in English, just in Hebrew. So I'm not going to say it because it's going to Narwhal. Narwhal, yes. Uh, so uh, these are also... Um, some of my most, um, you know, treasured episodes. I loved researching about them, um, really delving into the history of these um, mythical creatures and trying to, you know, think, find new angles in old stories, which is what I always do. You've mentioned the word research and that underpins so much of what we do as well. And that was one of the things that intrigued me was your research process because I was thinking, where do you begin? So the, the the story that you just mentioned, what first piqued your interest, or were you told about the concept and then you you went away to sort of triangulate that that research by looking at different sources, or did some of these emerge for you as well? I'd 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 love just to understand a little bit more about the I say the research and writing process that you went through for this, because I'm and and what libraries and what books etc. I think that for uh, your listeners that survived thus far uh, during this uh, episode of uh, the podcast, it should be clear that I'm driven by associations and that, you know, I might be a good editor for other people, but not for my own thoughts because they're all over the place. So the research process was a lot like that. I mean, I would read about one thing and then something else would come up 
for instance, the unicorns came up when I was actually researching ancient maps. And, um, and one of them was a picture of a mermaid and a unicorn. So I wrote down in my notebook, mermaids, question mark, unicorns, exclamation mark. I knew I had to go back and try and dig, in, dig around the roots of their uh, family tree. Um, and a lot of my research starts that way. I mean, I read about one thing and then another idea uh, presents itself and begs me to, um, um, you know, look into it. And I put a little pin in it and go back to it afterwards. Um, and then it's a lot of, um, you know, libraries, which are my most favorite places in the whole world. I, this is where I feel safe and I feel seen and I feel at home. Um, so there was a lot of crawling around in, in dusted libraries and sneezing the whole time. A lot of online, uh, archive searches as well, because everything can be, you know, most things, let me uh, correct myself and say, most things can be attained by a thorough, uh, online search today. Um, and a lot of going back to books I've read and, thought I remembered, but realized I really did not, you know, fully uh, realize what I was reading because a lot of this stuff was read in childhood. That was part of the pleasure in, in writing the book is going back to texts that I, I thought I knew and rediscovering them uh, from different angles. I, I feel a real affinity to how you're describing your process, because I think the best way that I can sometimes describe I wouldn't say an identical but similar process. I it can be very impressionistic. It, I can I'll, I'll have lots of lots of things going on, and then yes, you have to prioritize and, and zoom into that. But you know, it's somehow all relevant. But this this approach isn't legitimized. It's it's like we, we have you know we're, we're taught to be linear and, and focused, but actually, it's this part of the creative process that that that's when you just have to let your mind run a little bit more free and catch things in your peripheral vision. And you go, why does that thing keep coming back? In fact, you did mention that earlier, that these kind of, these concepts, these ideas, all these characters, all these sort of memes were kind of knocking on your door and uh, begging to uh, have a light shone on them a little brighter. And I think you've done that. Uh, but it's nice to understand the process and um, makes, um, I mean, because I'm always looking at other people going, oh, yeah, well, I do this. And then I, I time box it and I and I do this. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that. But somehow it's, um, I had a really great discussion a few years ago. And, and so it's like this idea of slack time. We, we're, we're, we're being told to be so productive and, 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 and the, this other space for just letting it be a little bit messy for a while, um, letting things emerge, that idea of emergence um, is lost. And uh, how do we create the space for that? I think that's one of my missions is just sort of how do we actually create the, the space for this? Just letting people feel it's okay to let the mind wander and daydream a bit and let those connections form in a, a non sort of intellectual manner, I think is um, so important. But uh, thank you for sharing that. I know that's not always easy. Yeah. But I think also at, at some point after you, you know, you, you're like a sponge. Okay. You, you soak up all this uh, information and you still don't know where it's going. 
you just have this raw um, data that's been fed into your mind. And then you have to start sifting through it and trying to understand, is there a link? Is there a connection? Is there a thread I can you know, tug on and pull on that would lead me to something that aligns all this data um, that I've gathered into something that is more coherent. And um, in in that sense, I really um, sympathize and empathize with the process that you're describing of you know, getting lost a little bit in this forest of information that we're surrounded by. And it's very hard to make sense of it, especially when you don't have... Um, like a good guide to take you by the hand and lead you through it and tell you this is more interesting and this is something that you should really pay attention to. So I think in in, in that uh, aspect, this is what my research process is a little bit about. But in another sense, at some point, I realized that what I was actually looking at were the the survivors. I mean, if I mentioned evolution at the beginning of our conversation think it's something that really, really interested me uh, to see who these cultural survivors were. I mean, why did um, witches survive while uh, fertility goddesses? Not so much. Why did unicorns made it into the all-time bestseller list up to the point where these, you know, multi-billion uh, high-tech companies are called unicorns. What happened to centaurs? Why don't we see centaurs taking center stage? And we do see unicorns. What happened in the evolution of these icons or archetypes or ideas or memes, whatever you call them, what happened during their evolutionary process that allowed them to adapt to survive and get to the point where they're still with us? Uh, what kind of mutations did they go through uh, in order to uh, survive up to this date? So I think this kind of like narrative genetics or cultural uh, evolutionary study became kind of my mission while I was looking, finding my way into in this uh, forest of information. Yeah. So what is the equity in these ideas that allows them to endure as long as they have, you know, what are those, what are those connections? Cause they're deeply human. It tells us a lot about ourselves as well. Oh, and we know about stories and uh, plots and um, the archetypes that we have, but the um, I think this is where myths allow us to sort of move into the fantastical in the superhuman um, and as we move into an age of artificial intelligence or having our brains wired to machines, uh, will some of these myths um, be even more uh, salient and important as we grapple with the, I mean, because you talk about centaur and that, that always sparks me off because then that gets me thinking about how chess has evolved and Actually, I think the future of creativity is still about creative people. They're never going to go away. But how do we have machines working alongside us um, and as a, an active collaborator, not just doing things um, 
for us, but more as that sort of center. And so I think that's, yeah, these, these ideas, I don't think they, they get lost. They, they, they become more relevant as we grapple with new concepts and, and new ideas. And bringing back the myth, the myth from the past allows us to think about the sort of possible future histories that we, you know, and how things play out and what those futures might look like too. So I think the application and the importance of this work um, shouldn't be underestimated because it allows you to, I mean, I, you, I mean, you, you used the word and I think that was one of the first uh, words I used to describe the book as well as just the, the sort of the, the semiotic journey that you go on with just what this stuff means and, and why it's important um, is, is fantastic. Um, and it helps us to make meaning of our own lives in the current state that we're all in or wherever we might be in the world. I think stories will always be important to us to as as tools to help us dissert, uh, decipher the um, the world around us especially as we as you described move into an era which is um, more and more machine generated uh, so to speak and i think these myths are still here with us and still survive because they you know they give us these uh, fundamental metaphors that are instrumental. They're key to the way that we can still recognize the world around us because it's changing so rapidly that, you know, if you're thinking about someone bringing someone from the past and dumping him in the middle of where I'm sitting now and using the technology that I'm using in order to talk to you, how, how would be, how would they be able to understand what they're seeing? They would have to, draw on the stories that they've heard about uh, communication by the gods, about prophets, about crystal balls, about, you know, they would have to resort to these kind of uh, terms in order to understand what they're seeing in front of them. And this is why I think these stories are still with us and are still so potent and powerful because it's very hard to structure the world around us in terms that we recognize. It's the part where we need these stories in order to uh, come to terms with the rapid changes in our own evolution. And it's a, it's a core part of our discipline in the work that we do at Sense Worldwide, the importance of storytelling and helping people that we're collaborating with to see things differently and think differently. And you're so right. Even though it, you may have just said, take someone by the hand and take them on, you have to do that. And it has to be one step at a time. You can't push people to new futures and they have to be things that are given meaning, these new futures. Uh, and, it, and it can't just be a spreadsheet of numbers to say, well, this is going to grow by X amount. Yeah, but how are we going to get there? How are we going to adopt it? What's the impact going to be? There's winners and losers here. And I think that w we are moving into an era, I think, fortunately, and this so many different factors have conspired to, to cause this, but we do have more information. We are doing more due diligence. And, you know, we want to be knowing that we're all spending our time better or for the betterment of others ourselves society as a, a large and actually it's these it's these stories that allow us to do it but they're so important in business as well and certainly i say the sort of the more, more creative ends of that but you know this is what annual reports are you know they're stories and you know 
the the, the story that always it's the you know it's like we're on this journey um so they're there and actually there's a lot of stuff they can't do magic overnight so um it is it is about the journey so i'm I, uh, yeah i'm a a real advocate for the storytelling piece i'm also very conscious we could spend probably or i could you might have had enough of me by now um but i could spend hours chatting Noah. so i wanted to ask in your work and knowing what you know about the sense network is there a question that you'd like to ask the sense network well there are many um and i began after you know delving into it a little bit as the preparation for our talk to really start thinking about it as this uh collective crystal ball uh or magical eight ball whichever way you you know choose to describe it and i'm really fascinated and would be thrilled to know what the sense network makes of the next step of the cultural evolution. If we had to, if it, if they had to bet, what stories would remain and what um, narrative strains will die out and fizz away from existence and not be relevant anymore? Um, What's the next big evolutionary leap that our culture is going to take? That's good. That's really good. I think we need to give that some more thought. And I think this one could run a little bit longer. I I think that's really great. What I am going to do, I'm going to draw this conversation to an end. I'm just going to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your thoughts and your stories. Uh, It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Extreme Perspectives brought to you by Sense Worldwide. We'd love you to join this conversation using the hashtag Extreme Perspectives. If you enjoyed it, leave us a review. The Sense Network collaborates with many of the world's most innovative companies to help them be more innovative. Join us at thesensenetwork.com or get in touch via email hello at senseworldwide.com.